Hi everyone, this is Salma Karashi for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today is April 10th, 2019, and our guest is Brian Casper. Hi, Brian. Hi, good afternoon. So Brian is former endowed professor at Nationwide Children's Hospital uh, and the Ohio State University. Um, Brian's academic career focused on basic and translational studies of neuromuscular disease mechanisms and on developing novel targets and optimal methods of gene delivery to remediate disease phenotypes. He's now founder and chief scientific officer of Avexis Inc., which is a gene therapy-based biotech company committed to pushing his basic and translational studies into developing clinical stage gene therapies. Uh, around the room, we've got Jenny Shea. Hi, Jenny. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi, Charlie. So, uh, Brian, so your company has developed a single-dose gene therapy product for treating the root cause of infant spinal muscular atrophy 1, and it's making its way now through a promising series of initial human trials. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So for today's discussion, I have a pretty ambitious goal of um, taking some time to talk about the many dimensions, just in the scientific domain, because I know there are many other dimensions, of... um, of making human gene transfer successful and therapeutic in a disease population. So I'd like to touch on basically like the gene targets, the aspects of vector serotype and architecture, and hopefully some of the delivery strategies and readouts of success. So that's an ambitious list, but it's an ambitious undertaking in general. Um, So let's see how far we can get. But first, I think it's important to let you um, give us your big picture of of the story, of the approach, and and a sense of, of some of the early results that you're seeing in the clinical trials. Yes, absolutely. And I just wanted to thank you for hosting me today. It's a, it's a pleasure, pleasure to tell our scientific story and, and a little bit more about Avaxis and what we do on thinking about science and delivering transformative therapies to patients. Um, essentially, we're a gene delivery company with gene replacement technology to be able to target the brain and spinal cord at really unprecedented levels, ways in which we couldn't do Uh, five years ago. And these are gene therapies that are potentially one-time therapies to treat the genetic root cause of diseases, such as uh, disease like spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, SMA type 1 patients, and I'm sure we'll talk more, uh, this is a lethal disease. Uh, Patients do not make, uh, make it to their second birthdays. And we essentially took our technology cloned the SMN transgene and delivered this to the proper cells residing within the brain and spinal cord. And the transformative results, patients are living far beyond what would be predicted by natural history. And further, they're developing motor milestones that essentially the textbooks say, the medical textbooks would state that these patients would never achieve. So the results are truly um, inspiring. Uh, for the scientists, inspiring for the patients and families of those who have been afflicted with this genetic disorder. And we continue to build upon our foundation of developing these transformative therapies uh, for other neurological diseases. So can we unpack that a little bit? So can we talk about the, the transgene itself, the, the gene target, and how, what, the, that, so that, is that that's sort of the first level of the approach, is what part the of the SMN? The genetic defect in the disease. The defect, yeah, and then your uh, target. Sure, so all SMA patients are lacking the SMN1 gene, and the disease is dictated by how many copies of this SMN2 backup gene that they have. So the most common cause, uh, the most common number 
of uh, spinal muscular atrophy as far as incidence is SMA type 1 patients. Just here in the United States, we have about 500 individuals who are born with spinal muscular atrophy, and about 60 to 70% of those patients have the most severe form of, of the disease called SMA type 1. The majority of these patients uh, have two copies of this SMN2 backup gene. It produces a small amount of the functional SMN protein, but they're lacking enough for proper motor neuron development. And motor neurons control and regulate uh, all of our skeletal muscles, including the ability to breathe, move, and swallow. And loss of both is lethal, SMN1 and 2. Correct. So that the, um, the idea, when you say to the proper cells, yeah. then that means to the motor neurons. Or is this protein important in lots of other neurons, too? So it's interesting, and academically, there's there's a tremendous debate about uh, which um, which cell types are required to have the proper amount of SMN levels. Uh, what we what there is no argument about is that motor neurons are the primary cell target in this disease. So motor neurons that don't have proper amounts of SMN, these are the cells that are first to go and our first dysfunction. It's interesting that uh, S the SMN protein is expressed in every single cell of the human body, but it's the motor neurons that, that are most susceptible to the loss of SMN levels. So it must have some, well, you know, the name just says that it's necessary, <laughs> basically. But uh, w do we know anything about what its actual function in the cell is? So the SMN uh, protein is involved in SNRNP biogenesis. So this is involved in RNA processing and appears to be essential for, again, the motor neurons functions. However, it's likely controlling and regulating many different RNA species as it's been elusive to really understanding uh, what, the what the one or two downstream functions of this protein really is. So, as I understand, though, your approach, you're not specifically targeting the motor neurons, but uh, basically delivering this gene to everything. Is that right? So, one, we stayed out of the academic debate of whether muscle was important or not. There's certainly things going wrong with the muscle, but that could be because the motor neurons are perishing in this disease. I think in, uh, we've taken the approach in SMA type 1 patients that these patients clearly show a motor neuron deficit, uh, and motor neurons are the primary cell type, but there are other manifestation or peripheral aspects of the disease that we believe a systemic exposure and targeting as many cells throughout the human body as possible. Uh, would be optimal for the SMA type 1 patients. And I'll give just a couple examples of the SMA type 1 patient population have um, significant autonomic nervous system uh, disorders on the aspect that these patients are um, sensitive to extremely bright lights. They're sensitive to temperature changes, suggestive of autonomic system involvement. Uh, furthermore, their enteric nervous system uh, seems to have an involvement, and this is the nervous system that controls uh, the, uh, the gut 
And for example, the majority of SMA type 1 patients have severe constipation issues. And many of these patients are hospitalized just for the constipation issues. So it looks like the SMA type 1 patient population have uh, significant motor neuron deficits, but other peripheral and systemic aspects that we believe in this patient population, a simple IV intravenous exposure to our drug AVXS 101 is the optimal approach. And the trick then is to get the virus into the central nervous system because whereas motor neurons have axons that leave the central nervous system and you could maybe infect them through their axons, you can't get everywhere in the nervous system that way. So if you're trying to get everywhere in the nervous system, you need to get the virus in. And how, what's the trick for that? So the trick is essentially our laboratory started a, my former academic laboratory started a project in 2007 where we started to, uh, where we sought to find a virus that could cross the blood-brain barrier that would target the cells, the motor neurons at all regions of the spinal cord at impressive levels. And the trick here was AEV number nine, serotype number nine, or I call it sometimes flavor uh, AEV nine, had this remarkable capacity and ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. Whereas most of these viruses can't cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, the AEV9 has this unique uh, capability of crossing the blood-brain barrier and targeting cells throughout the brain and spinal cord at really unprecedented levels. You, you can tell uh, us how, how it does this yeah, because exactly. it's actually really amazing. And I don't know if everybody appreciates the connection between the blood-brain barrier and neurons. That's a great question, and I wish I had all of the answers here, and that's why we continue to do science to understand how this actually functions and, and does um, the crossing of the barrier. Essentially, there's hundreds if not thousands of these AAV flavors or serotypes that exist, and the majority of these viruses do not make their way into the brain. And that's actually the, our brains, our central nervous systems have really evolved to protect our central nervous system from infections. And one of the leading areas of protection is this blood-brain barrier. And these are tight endothelial cells um, in which it prevents most things getting into our central nervous system. Uh, that's a challenge for drug makers because while it's preventing other viruses of getting into the brain and spinal cord, uh, it also prevents many drugs and many therapies to get inside, to target when something goes wrong. And I wish I could say we understood the mechanism of how AUV9 crosses those barriers, mm -hmm. but we don't have those answers yet. It looks like when you look at the family tree of these AUVs, uh, on the aspect that the AEV9 or the clad that this virus or the family tree that this virus is in is a little bit more unique than some of the other family members. And we're trying to utilize that understanding to really decipher how does AEV9 do this. And the better that we can understand the mechanism, 
the better that we can improve upon these viral vectors, or AEV9 in particular, to improve this process. So this has something to do with um, proteins that are part of the capsid, uh, right? Because that's the part that uh, has to get carried across membranes and has to trigger uptake, or uh, and that is responsible for the infection process, whatever specificity there is in the infection process as well, right? So the difference between these is basically in the proteins that are around that, outside of them. That, that's correct. Let me just tell you a little bit about this virus, these adeno-associated viruses or AAVs. Um, these are 20 nanometers in diameter. There's protein on the outside. They're icosahedral in shape. They're part of a member of this viral family called parvoviridae. Uh, so these exist naturally uh, in, in nature. Uh, what, the, what these protein icosahedron 20 nanometer particles, protein on the outside with DNA stuffed on the inside. And essentially the capsid binds to various receptors or co-receptors for its internalization of how does it get inside of a cell. These are typically not passive processes, but rather the virus is, is harnessing its ability to enter the cell via a receptor or a co-receptor. Once it gets inside of the cell, it's taken up and is put into um, uh, vesicles. Those vesicles are transported to the nucleus, and only when it enters into the nucleus does the capsid shell start disintegrating or breaking apart allowing then the DNA to be left within the nucleus, where essentially it forms very stable concatomers and will stay inside of that nucleus for the life of the cell. So normally AAV uh, genetic material can be come integrated into the chromosome, but in the viruses you're using, the, the pieces of the normal genome of the virus have been removed that allows that. Is that right? So that, so basically there's no integration into the genome. They stay. You're exactly right. Uh, Wild-type AAV or those AAVs that exist in nature have the machinery where it gets integrated into chromosome 19. When we make these into therapeutics or recombinant adeno-associated viruses, we've essentially gutted the inside of the virus, removing the genes that are involved in the integration process. So this adds to a potential safety factor on the aspect that this is not integrating into the host cell genome, but again forms these very stable episodes within the cell's nucleus. And as long as the cell does not divide, the episome appears to be extremely stable within the cell. And the virus can only carry a relatively small piece of DNA. Uh, what's, and you are, are actually delivering two pieces that are complementary to each other. Is that right? And, uh, and so you're actually cutting the payload in half by doing that. Yes, and, and we can talk uh, more about this. We utilize this uh, technology called the self-complementary DNA technology. And this was work uh, that came out of Dr. Doug McCarty and Dr. Jude Samulski uh, from UNC Chapel Hill. 
essentially these viruses typically package as single-stranded DNA genomes of approximately 4,500 base pairs. Uh, what Dr. McCarty did was he tricked this system by mutating one of the inverted terminal repeats to essentially allow this to package as a duplex strand of DNA. So essentially, this became really important in our mindset to utilize this uh, technology on the aspect that the normal virus being single-stranded, it takes time for it to produce what's called second-strand synthesis or becoming a double-stranded piece of DNA. That can take on the order of weeks, if not over a month, to, to do this process. And this process is essential for transcription and then translation and protein production to occur. When we look at the severity of spinal muscular atrophy and how quickly the SMA patient can go downhill, we realized that we didn't have a month to wait to ramp up the SMN transgene. And we utilized Dr. McCarty's technology to essentially trick this system to package as a duplex or double-stranded piece of DNA. Essentially what that means is when AEV9 gets into the cell, such as the motor neuron, enters the cell nucleus, opens up and deposits, deposits its DNA, we are instantaneously or nearly instantaneously turning on the protein production. And we believe that that is helping to explain why we are seeing such rapid positive responses in the patients who have been treated with AVXS 101. Yeah, we know about this because some of us use AV to deliver genetic material into the brain, and it seems like you have to wait forever for it to actually infect the neurons and express the gene that you want. And we, we all loathe hating, waiting around for a month before we can do our experiments. So maybe it would be good for us to try that. But the, but part of the problem with that is just how much DNA you can deliver. So how big is the SMN1 gene? And what, how, how big a portion of it are you able to deliver through that mechanism? Yeah, so while this technology is really exciting and can turn on genes very quickly, uh, you, the limitation with the technology is it essentially uh, halves the size that you can package. So instead of a 4,500 base pair uh, DNA genome that can be packaged, essentially you're cutting that in half with about 2,300 base pairs that can effectively be packaged. And I think this whole field of virology and AAV biology uh, has, has really appreciated that as these viruses package, you can't be too big and you can't be too small. And uh, when, when we look at utilizing these self-complementary DNA technologies, you have the genome that you can put inside. You have to really pay attention to not every single gene is going to be able to utilize this technology because a gene is too big. In the case of SMN, it's about a 700, just over a 750 base pair gene. Uh, when we put in our promoter or the engine that drives the transcription along with the polyadenylation sites, uh, we've engineered this to be the optimal size so for whole, packaging. Yeah, the whole gene, the whole thing. The whole SMN uh, cDNA has been cloned uh, in. So, 
In terms of the interesting points at which you can engineer to make the system more efficient, it seems like you've got the proteoglycan or the architecture or the protein content of the capsid, and then you've got this—you've got the whole transgene. So there's no optimization of the actual uh, the whole gene in, in the actual gene product that you're producing. Where do you work at to optimize the sort of the, the efficiency of this process? And if the readout, and what is the readout actually in, in a human? Is it just the, the amelioration at this point? Like how do, you, how do you balance the engineering aspect of this or is that part all done at this point? Well, we, we utilize the AEV9. Uh, the AEV9 capsid is the delivery truck that delivers the, the, the genes inside of the cell and into the cell nucleus. And then it really becomes the engineering aspect of you've got your gene of interest in, in the case of SMA, it's the SMN uh, transgene. And then you have a wealth of um, engineering that, that is possible. And that is what promoter do you utilize? What polyadenylation signal? Do you have an intronic sequence to help on the expression? In the case of AVXS 101, uh, we design this, and, and I always liken this to a very strong promoter. I call it the Lamborghini of promoters. This is a very strong promoter called the Chicken Beta Actin Promoter. And this is a modified promoter from uh, that uh, others in the field had utilized a cytomegalovirus promoter. These are ubiquitous promoters. They're strong promoters. When we designed this and engineered this into AVXS 101, we looked for any potential signs that this might shut down. In thinking about the disease spinal muscular atrophy, this is a protein that's produced in every single cell of the human body and over the duration of one's lifespan. So this is a protein that needs to be produced for the long term. And we were concerned, as many in the field was concerned, that these promoters can shut down. We've seen this with other viral vector systems, and it's a process known as hypermethylation. And when we looked at our, the promoter or the Lamborghini engine that we put inside of AVXS 101, we looked for minimal to, uh, to less number of methylation sites in order to try to engineer around this concept of hypermethylation or the engine's going to shut down over time. Our rodent studies, our uh, preclinical and non-clinical studies have shown robust, this is on for the long term, no signs of a waning or, or lack of durability. I think we've been extremely impressed in the, in the patients who have been treated with AVXS 101 on the aspect that this really does appear to be a one-time administration with a long-term durability of effect with no signs that, these, that this is shutting down over time. And these patients continue, the patients who have been treated with AVXS 101, again, this is a one-time treatment. These patients, um, uh, many have been on drug over five years and continue to gain motor milestones. So we're encouraged about this aspect that this really could be a one-time treatment. Now we're paying attention to what if 40 years down the line, what if this thing does start slowing down? What if we would have to re-administer? And there's a lot of studies going on right now to investigate how we would, how we would do that. 
how do you know how much virus to inject in the first place? Yeah. There are a lot of cells in the body, and each virus only gets to infect one cell, right? Right. So that, and it probably you want more than one virus per cell. And uh, how do you do that calculation? Do you figure out how many cells there are, and then how many viruses I need, and and how many you're going to get past the blood-brain barrier? So we've done extensive biodistribution studies in, uh, in multiple species from mice to non-human primates and now human beings where we certainly look for the safety um, of, of our product but then answering the exact question of how much virus do you need to administer to effectively target motor neurons in this disease or, or the cells that are involved in the disease. And in a series of studies, uh, we did the best that we could to try to, pr to initiate the first in human trials with a starting dose where we believe that we would have a clinical meaningful impact and to actually perform dose ranging studies. And it was throughout those processes that we've now um, treated patients and we've seen a dose effect and we've uh, locked down a dose where we're seeing these transformative uh, effects in patients. So how's the numbers turn out? Is it like 10 times the number of cells in the body? I don't even know how to calculate the number of cells in the body. Well, um, you know, we are administering 1.1, our proposed therapeutic dose is 1.1 times 10 to the 14th vector genomes or AVXS 101 particles per kilogram. So many of these babies are receiving, you know, close to 10 to the 15th. Uh, our first patient, I think, was injected with 400 trillion AVXS 101 It's got to be more than particles. So, so do, you think, do you think that's why it works really well is because you are targeting babies? So, for example, can you scale this up to a fully grown adult? Great question. You know, one of the things we've been in, um, you know, non-human primates as young as one day old. We've been in non-human primates as old as 10 years of age. And we found that when given the proper amount, that enough will cross the blood-brain barrier and target cells. So we don't think that there's an age restriction for systemic delivery other than you just increase the demand of product that is necessary. And this is something that uh, we discovered a little bit later on the aspect that there's another route of administration that was at our disposal for, for example, the SMA type 2 patients or larger patients, type 3 patients, where we didn't necessarily see the peripheral manifestation of the disease and that we could target the central nervous system and the motor neurons effectively. And that's really where we found that we could cross another barrier by putting this into the cerebral spinal fluid but via an intrathecal delivery. And lo and behold, AUV9 crossed targeted motor neurons and cells throughout the brain and spinal cord, again at these shocking, impressive levels. So how are you assaying time points in terms of the stability of the transgene? Is it, can you just sort of, you, you would do a spinal tap and just look for the transgene over time in these initially treated babies? So the SMN uh, protein is not a secreted protein. It actually resides within the cell's nucleus. 
So there is no easy way to look for a biomarker or to look for the expression because really the biological function is happening in the motor neurons residing within the brain and spinal cord. So how we've assessed these patients has been the addition of motor milestones and the maintenance of motor milestones. There's a motor functional test for infants uh, called the CHOP Intend, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Infant Test of Motor Function that was developed by Dr. Richard Finkel uh, during his time at, um, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And this is a, a scoring system, 16 different motor functions that are assessed in an infant from the ability of the baby to lift their head, to roll over, to lifting their arms towards midline. The patients get scored by physical therapists or by uh, neurologists on this test, which is qualified and validated uh, as an assessment tool uh, from a score from zero to four on the 16 battery test. Um, maximum score is 64. It's been really exciting. Some of our early treated patients have achieved the maximum score. Uh, natural history in the SMA type 1 patient population shows that between 6 to 12 months of age, there's a minus 10.5 points on this CHOP intent. So these patients go down extremely rapidly. When you look at the body and wealth of information, SMA type 1 patients, if they ever achieve a score above 40, the next time they come into their neurologist's office, they will be below the score of 40. So the score of 40 is kind of the threshold to say, it, does a patient get above that number on this CHOP intend, and do they maintain above that? And 11 out of 12 patients in the proposed therapeutic dose, those receiving 1.1 times 10 to the 14th factor genomes per kilogram, achieved above a score of 40 and maintain that throughout the, the course. Again, two patients achieving um, the maximum score of 64 on this test, and many of these patients surpassing the score of 50. Probably more important in, in questioning is, are these babies developing motor milestones? Can they roll over? Can they crawl? Can they stand? Can they sit unassisted? Uh, 11 of 12 patients in the proposed therapeutic dose uh, can sit unassisted for greater than 30 seconds. Again, something that in the SMA type 1 patient population, the numerator or the number of patients who would be able to do that is zero. So and, does this align with what we understand about the trajectory of the disease itself? Like is in this type 1 format, is this sort of an initial insult type model that then if you've got a remediation early on that you can then sort of recover and there's a window in which you can, you know, the motor, the motor neurons can sort of adapt and figure out what they're doing and then progress, or do you really need the, the functional gene on board throughout? So what, what we know from our preclinical studies, but also now in, in, in clinical trials, is earlier intervention is better. And we at Avaxis, uh, we've coined this phrase, time is motor neurons because you need to get in as early as possible. This disease is relentless and progressive. With the advent of newborn screening in many states adding uh, SMA 
to their newborn screens, and we're seeing an increased uh, number of states implementing this, and it's passed now from the Health and Human Services that this is going to be required as part of the newborn screening test. I was going to ask you, um, so is it a recessive gene? So do the mom and the dad, are they heterozygous? That's correct. But they're normal developmentally or their motor functions? They're, they're normal. So you, unless you go and get tested, and, and that test exists, um, not many people go and get tested to determine whether they're a carrier. So it takes a male carrier and a female carrier uh, to have a child, and then there's a 25% chance that that child would have SMA. And so the parents have already half as much or half levels of S SMN, but they're fine. And so really, you think the gene therapy just has to, it probably, you, don't, you probably don't need the full yeah. dose, right? That's correct. We are uh, gene, uh, gene replacement strategies to get SMN at a proper level as early as possible. Mm -hmm. This seems like this. Disease seems like an opportunity, like a, a, a um, like one that will respond uh, well. So, are there lots of diseases like this that are genetic loss of function diseases that are recessive, and that you could just hope, since you have a delivery vehicle, it can take it the the gene anywhere you want it, everywhere basically is where you want it, and that and you can do that. Is this going to be something that just explodes? I mean. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're, t you're talking to the optimist here and, and the, the person who is uh, probably the biggest spokesperson for AUV9 and the potential of gene replacement or gene therapeutic strategies. And uh, we do believe that this is a foundational study that we intend to take our knowledge base and continue to grow into other disease indications. So AVXS 101 is spinal muscular atrophy, we have uh, we will be in the clinic this year for Avexis 201 and Avexis 301 um, for uh, Rett syndrome, which is Avexis 201, uh, which is an autism spectrum disorder affecting females, where we know, again, it's a monogenic disease. We know the gene to replace, in this case, MECP2 at proper levels. Uh, as well as uh, in Lou Gehrig's disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in about the 2 to 3 percent of uh, patient population that have SOD1 or superoxide dismutase 1 mutations uh, that they develop ALS. We have a gene suppression strategy utilizing a small hairpin RNA that is delivered again by this platform, the AAV9 platform, to be able to suppress that gene for those patients. So if you can suppress genes too, that opens up a whole range of other diseases like Huntington's disease comes immediately to mind. So um, the polyglutamine repeats? Yeah, could would this work for just suppressing mutant Huntington? I mean, polyglutamine repeat probably is not that great of a target, I guess. There are others out there trying a suppression or microRNA-based strategy to uh, downregulate the Huntington gene. So that would be a, some kind of other genetic thing, but it would be delivered in the same way. That's correct. 
And one of the things that we've done at Avaxis has been to really uh, crack the code, as I say, of how do you manufacture this in a manner that you can distribute this drug around the, the globe with the numbers of patients, and how do we scale this in a commercial fashion, uh, meeting all of the regulatory requirements of a global product. And our manufacturing and research and development and analytical development teams have really worked. This is one of the things I'm most proud about because we have really developed the methodologies to understand how do you take these gene therapies from an academic process to really thinking about them as drugs that are going to get out there and licensed to patients and be able to treat patients around the world. And I think you brought up a really good point earlier on the aspect of how do you determine the dose. And this is something that Avaxis is putting a lot of our brain power and brain trust into with utilizing our rodent or mouse model studies to non-human primate studies to then absolute human clinical trial data coming in in dose ranging studies from our 101, 201, and soon to be 301 studies that this is helping us refine the equation. How do you go from a mouse efficacious dose to a human dose? And we're trying to continue to refine that equation so that when we start these clinical trials, we'll have a safety profile and understanding that this is safe for patients, but most importantly that we're, we've characterized the understanding that we know where our product goes and that it's getting to the cells that are necessary for that disease. Have, have there been any surprises along the way in terms of translating from rodent to primate to humans? And Because that's incredibly interesting and informative in itself also, if there have been. I always uh, say, uh, you know, most things work really well in a mouse, and then as you try to go up to higher species, you start finding the, you know, complications or it doesn't work as well. In the case of this AUV9, the species translation and has, has worked just as well, if not better, as, as we've went up, up the chain from mouse to monkey to man. That seems to be also kind of centered upon picking the right kind of disease. I mean, like Alzheimer's may not be as efficacious. I think you make a great point um, on the aspect that uh, here with spinal muscular atrophy, and uh, we, we had a fantastic rodent model of the disease. It was developed by Dr. Arthur Burgess, uh, who's a molecular geneticist, uh, friend, colleague, collaborator at The Ohio State University. So really in my backyard when I was at Nationwide Children's in The Ohio State University, I had the individual who made the mouse model of this disease and just the teamwork that we had uh, between uh, the Burgess Laboratory and the Caspar Laboratory was, was really something special uh, to be able to take now this mouse model and test therapies. So Arthur's mouse is, continues to this day to be utilized around the globe to understand um, spinal muscular atrophy from the biology aspect, but also in testing therapeutics, including AVXS 101. And this mouse model, um, the, the mouse dies at about two weeks of age. So the median lifespan of this mouse with SMA, you've got the, the carrier, 
mom and dad, 25% of the mice offspring have spinal muscular atrophy. And within approximately two weeks, um, you'll know whether your drug is working or not. The median lifespan of this mouse is 15 plus or minus one or two days. So back in the day, this was 2009, 2010, we had treated uh, our mice with AVXS 101, this self-complementary AEV9 expressing with that Lamborghini promoter, this chicken beta actin promoter with the SMN transgene, a one-time administration into the bloodstream in these animals early in life, postnatal day one or two, we had some of the longest living SMA mice with animals doubling their lifespan than living past 100 days and over 30% of these animals surpassed 300 days of age. And essentially, they're not just laying in the side of the cage, they're running around the cage and acting like a normal mouse would. So it was really the light bulbs went off on the aspect that we knew that we were targeting the right cells, that we had determined the right dose, a minimally effective dose, the proposed therapeutic dose, that we started the safety studies and really moved this forward into first in human studies. It's great to hear a success story about mice. Uh, we hear a lot of mouse bashing, people saying that things that work in mice are, are, are no good, and so it's great to hear that. As somebody who works in mice, it's great to hear that sometimes the mouse is a good model for something. Absolutely. Can I ask a question? So we talked about this uh, early in the podcast about the naturally occurring AAVs. So I think maybe I misunderstood this somewhere, but I think so. If a if a patient or a person has been exposed to this wild type AAV, would they develop antibodies to AAV? so that if they needed the gene therapy, the body's antibodies would uh, do, you know, reject the virus? Or is the, your gene therapy different enough where our antibodies would not touch it? So you're exactly right. Uh, out of these viruses, and AEV9 is a naturally uh, is a natural virus that one could get exposed to uh, throughout their lifetime the wild-type version of the virus. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more uh, about what the numbers really are in, in our uh, experiences, and we continue to collect data on this. But essentially, if you're exposed to these viruses, your immune system um, targets the virus, and essentially you develop antibodies against these viruses. And these antibodies can be neutralizing and prevent one then from going in and utilizing the AEV9 as a therapeutic tool. Um, it's something that we screen every single patient for in our clinical trials. And uh, we have found some maternal transfer of antibodies into babies. And Dr. Mandel, who I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, really uh, helped define some of the clinical guidance. Uh, Dr. Mandel ran the phase 1-2A clinical trial and has been part of our pivotal trials uh, for AVXS 101 uh, as we've continued to expand in, into the patient populations. Uh, Dr. Mandel basically advised that mothers would stop breastfeeding for a period of time for these antibodies to clear from the maternal transfer, allowing us to redose some of these kids, and they've done extremely well. 
when we look at the prevalence in the human population for neutralizing antibodies, um, in the pediatric patient population, you find very low incidence of patients being exposed to these viruses. And only after the age of 40 does one see the numbers start creeping up with about 30% of the human population post the age 40 is seropositive for AUV9, for example. Now, there's ways around this. Uh, there's immune suppressive regimens. Dr. Mendel uh, published actually a really exciting non-human primate study where he plasmapherised and actually removed the antibodies, allowing him in that non-human primate to go in where that monkey had been positive for, for the AEV serotype in, in, in being tested in those studies. So this is something that we're paying attention to. Again, for looking at SMA type 1, uh, these patients are diagnosed typically around six months of age, and we really have not seen uh, screen failures as we've looked for, for this in this patient population. Well, I think we're out of time, but this has been incredibly exciting, and hope to hear more about this. We'll be looking out for the, it's AVXS101 is the product. So that was our internal name. The drug name is called Zolgensma. Oh, I'll never remember that. It sounds very it's going to sound much better cool. on TV. Yeah, when it's, <laughs> when it's in the commercial uh, with the frolicking daisies. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for joining us. This has been really great. Uh, Real Ryan pleasure. Casper. This is a neuroscientist talk shop. Mm -hmm.